The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is a glorious day here in Massachusetts. The sun is shining. It's not overly hot, although I'll tell you, after the winter we had, I welcome the overly hot. But it's a beautiful day, uh, and we've got some really great stuff to talk about today. I'm curious if anyone in the audience out there uh, ever got in any trouble in high school. If you're a parent, you may be thinking, I did, and the consequences were not such a big deal back then. Uh, If you're a student, you may be thinking, I did. And uh, I'm a little concerned. So my colleague, Ken and Dick, is going to be here. And we're going to be talking about how you handle those disciplinary infractions when it comes time to apply to college. Because they can impact your chances. And how you handle it is often more important than what you actually did. Sometimes, not always. Uh, In our final segment today, we're going to be discussing a path that I'm seeing more and more students investigate, and that is majoring in business as an undergraduate. It seems to be a very popular option, and in the time that I've been working with students going through this process, to me it seems anyway that it becomes more and more popular every year. So we're going to be talking about that. But first, Beth Feinberg-Keenan, who's formerly a senior financial aid officer at Northeastern University right here in Boston, and my current college coach colleague, she's here, uh, and she's going to help us better understand college financial aid policies, which sounds kind of like big, and hopefully we'll, we'll live up to that billing. Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much, Beth. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. We're excited to have you here. And I, I think in general, what we're hoping to do is help people understand when you get a financial aid award from a college, how to really understand that. Is that sort of what we're, we're after today? Definitely. There are so many questions that you might want to ask a college when you're getting that financial aid award and how different changes or decisions that your children make, how they can impact future financial aid award letters um, in their upper class years specifically, or maybe even that first year that they're getting on that offer. Okay, perfect. So I think my first question, one that I certainly hear parents asking is, is this offer that we're getting this year the one that we're going to get every year? Or is there a chance that um, if there's a merit aid component that that money might go away after freshman year? So I think most families, this is actually, you know, basically one of those big questions. And, you know, when they're making that decision where their child's going to go to school, you know, they hope that that aid that they're getting is definitely guaranteed for all four years that their child's going to be attending that institution. But as I said, they definitely want to reach out and, you know, talk to the college and make sure that they understand all of the different policies 
that are associated with keeping that uh, specifically merit aid that's been offered to the student. So one thing, you know, that they might want to ask is when they're considering, you know, is this school right for me, is what portion of students actually get their scholarships from freshman to sophomore year? That's a really good indicator to figure out, you know, maybe that GPA requirement is too high and less than 50% of the students are getting their scholarships renewed in subsequent years. You Mm -hmm. want to take that into consideration when you're making that decision. I worked with a number of families when I was at Northeastern University, and we offered merit aid uh, to students. We guaranteed the scholarships that they were offered for four years, but there were certain things that could happen that they could potentially lose eligibility. Students' GPA falls below the required GPA, um, for that scholarship. So families find out, first and foremost, what's that required GPA? What happens if my child's GPA falls below that required maybe 3.0, 2.75? Is there a probationary period that the student can take advantage of? When I worked at a school, you know, we did have a probationary period, but we didn't check eligibility until after they completed their freshman year of college. But every school might not be like Northeastern where I had worked. So, again, students want to make sure that they know what the um, requirements are when eligibility is checked. If they lose their scholarship, can they get it back? Can they Mm -hmm. get it back in the future? Because families, are you ready to pay for that additional money if your child loses the scholarship? Some schools might replace it with a little, you know, different type of fund, different money. Some schools totally go away with that money, and so the family has to come up with that additional money. Right, or transfer. That you know what that is. Right. Okay. Um, Great advice. As another factor too could be like changing your major. I get that question all the time as a college coach. I want to apply for this major because I heard it's easy to get a scholarship. But what if I change my major? Will I lose that scholarship? Hmm. And how frequently do you know does that happen? Uh, or is it really hard to say and it could vary from school to school? I think it can really vary from school to school. Some schools, you know, you're getting a scholarship because you're majoring in engineering and you decided to change to business. You could lose that. But some schools have scholarships which, you know, title like a dean scholarship, an excellent scholarship, an academic scholarship. So it might not be tied to major at all. It's just tied to the student's academic performance. So they can major in business. They can major in physics, they can major in English and still get that same scholarship. Gotcha. But a good question to ask, especially if, you know, and we are on record here, we did a whole segment about presenting your authentic self and we're not a big, we're not big fans of applying to a major that you actually don't want to study in is just a sort of admissions tactic. Um, and there's another downside, which I never even thought about, which is potentially if you get some merit aid, per, it might be tied to that major or to that school at, you know, if the school has, um, more than one undergraduate college, it might be tied to that particular undergraduate college. If you leave that college, you might lose the money. So definitely something to ask about. Great, great advice. Exactly. What about exactly. what, what about students who maybe defer admission for a year? That's something that some students do. Maybe they're going to go, they just need a break after high school. Maybe they're going to go to Israel for a year. Uh, maybe they have something else in mind. Um do, do those students get the same aid offered to them for the next year when they're actually ready to start? So, again, Beth, I just want to, you know, it depends. 
<laughs> that's everything. <laughs> I mean, I think that's going to be the theme of my, uh, of my, as we say, segment today. You know, it really depends. There's no standard policy across the board for all colleges. So, first and foremost, if it's need-based financial aid, it's definitely not guaranteed because the only has to reapply each year. So, maybe the student might not be going to Israel. Maybe they're taking time off and they're working. Mm -hmm. So that could impact need-based financial aid in subsequent years when that student decides to come to that institution. The other thing, too, is that it's not uncommon that students might start taking classes during that year off. And colleges may no no longer consider that student a freshman. And now they're looked at as a transfer student, and they're no longer eligible for those incoming freshman scholarships. And families are thinking, hey, my child took one or two classes to kind of, you know, Get a leg up. They were doing that with an enrichment program. They were doing that you know, overseas when they were, you know, participating in this program because they didn't want to lose the momentum of the education. But now they've put themselves in a position that they're no longer considered an incoming student. Mm-hmm. And the last um, thing that I also see them, um, come into play sometimes is that students, they, well, college will reevaluate um, students based on the new class coming in. So they're not evaluated anymore based on the class that they were admitted in. So that merit aid that the student was offered for $5,000 for $10,000 isn't guaranteed beyond that class unless they come in with that class. And that's something that families should consider when they're making that decision. Is it right for my child to defer the admission beyond what are they going to get out of that year? What does that mean in terms of our being able this college when our child's going to enroll a year or so after uh, by deferring their admission. Right. Yep, there are definitely a lot of things to think about. And as you say, every year you enroll a brand new class who, with different sets of strengths and interesting people. And one year you might be a high flyer, and then the next year you might be, there might be a lot of students who look just like you and they don't, they're not really going to offer that merit money because they don't feel like they need to lure that student to campus. So... You're right, As and usual. I saw that happen so many times at college. Yeah, so that's definitely something to watch out for. And what about if you get um, outside money? Does that mean that the school is going to automatically reduce their scholarship or grant aid uh, because maybe I won some outside scholarships that I'm then hoping to use to pay for my college? So one thing that students should definitely research when they're researching different colleges, every single school has what's called an outside scholarship policy. And colleges should outline specifically what happens if students are bringing in outside money, whether it's from a local community-based scholarship, um, some scholarship from mom and dad's employer, um, maybe a national scholarship that they're getting. Some schools don't reduce anything. Some schools may allow it to actually go and fill the gap because, again, not all schools are able to meet full need for a student. So the family may have to come up with more money above and beyond, like, what's expected by, by their family contribution. Other schools may say, sure, no problem at all. It can reduce the money down that the, that the parents have to pay, and it won't reduce any type of assistance that's offered to the student. Now, some other schools might take another approach and might decide to actually reduce down loans, might reduce down some type of self-help in terms of college work study or um, on-campus work. And, you know, that's great because really the last thing that families really want to see is that they are reducing any type of outside 
uh, their outside scholarships and the work that their children spent getting and winning these scholarships is going to reduce down any type of grants or scholarships that the students offered by the school. I mean, the free money is what everybody wants, and it's also the most scarce, you know, in terms of resources. But, you know, I'm not saying it can't happen, but you want to make sure that you are aware of what could happen. Right. The other, you know, going back to, you know, you want to be truthful. Um, you don't know how many times that, you know, scholarship checks, you know, saying, hey, this is me to the student. School's never going to find out. A lot of scholarship companies will actually make the checks available to the school and to the student. And so it has mm-hmm. to go into the student's account and the school's going to find out about it. And then you students enroll at school and they already enrolled and they find out they're losing money kind of like, you know, in the 12th hour. Right. Not good. Not ideal. Yeah, I mean, truthfulness is super important in this process. There is almost never anything to be gained by being less than truthful and generally a lot to lose by being less than truthful, um, especially when you're dealing with money in particular because you can actually run afoul of the law. Um, but there's a great example of maybe you're not going to run afoul of the law, but you are going to hurt yourself in the long run if you're not up front. And also if you don't educate yourself up front about, gee, what are the policies? Because maybe you're down to two or three final choices and one school welcomes outside funds and won't reduce your grant merit money at all, and another might take it there first. So you need to be aware of it. Um, What about moving off campus? Does that potentially reduce aid or can it impact aid once you're more of an upperclassman and maybe you're not in the dorms anymore? So colleges, you know, usually have, I would say, going on. They have a budget for students who are living on campus. They have a a budget for students who are living campus in an apartment, and then they have one for those students who are living with parents in, in, in commuting. So often I hear from families, you know, when they're thinking about having their child live on campus, that freshman year is really important. They're going to live on campus for their freshman year. They're going to decide what they're going to do for their upper class years because that freshman year, it's also part of that whole college experience, integrating and getting, you know, friends and, just, you know, connections. So that cost of attendance for the freshman year is based upon students living on campus. And after the freshman year, if the family decides to say, hey, you know, you're going to move back home and you're going to commute, then you're going to have a significant reduction in your overall cost. That you're no longer going to have room and board uh, charges that are going to be paid directly to the institution. So when that happens, by all means, because you have a reduced cost, that could reduce aid in subsequent years. But on the flip side, it's not uncommon that students wouldn't want to live off campus. And when students are living off campus, I always recommend the students that you want to make sure that you stay within the confines of the budget. You know, what is school budgeted for on-campus housing versus living in an apartment? Because mm-hmm. living off campus, they're not necessarily going to lower your overall cost of attendance because it's typically comparable to living in the dorms. So it's going to be built in. But what I would see is on the flip side, students getting very expensive apartments, making decisions that are not necessarily wise for living like a student when you're in school, but they're living more like a professional when they're they're a student. Mm -hmm. And students coming into the aid office saying, I need my budget increased because I'm living in this apartment and the rent is $2,000 a month. So what can you do for me? Well, 
schools can increase the cost of attendance with supporting documentation, but that doesn't always like give you more financial aid to offset those costs. I mean, I had conversations and a couple of students, as I say, who were my frequent flyers when I worked at Northeastern, who would be so proud of themselves that they had found a great um, off-campus apartment, but they were unrealistic rent. I mean, they were looking at $2,000. They were looking at $1,500 a month on top of food and utilities and everything else that it costs to live off campus. And they would come in my office and say, you know, I need an increase. I could increase their budget. I wouldn't give more financial aid. They could also borrow money. So it was really mm-hmm. a loose for both students and families. It wasn't, you know, cutting the cost. It was ultimately allowing the family to either come up with more out of pocket or the student having to borrow more in the long run. Right. So, yeah, you do have to be careful with that, especially when you go to school in a city. And that's something Definitely. also to think about, right, is it's going to be a lot more expensive to rent an apartment in the middle of Boston versus uh, somewhere outside of Boston. Even the suburbs might be a little pricey, but when you get into a more rural area where you're the only game in town, it may be a lot cheaper. I certainly never spent $2,000 on an apartment when I was in college. I could never have afforded that. So, <laughs> Or even how many roommates you have. Living alone yes. living with one or two roommates can make a significant difference, too. Right. Or living with six roommates. I mean, that is the reality, right? It is not necessarily the time where you get to live like a professional. That's a great way to put it. It is you're in college. You should be living like a college student unless you have this phenomenal job that allows you to pay for all those things to live like a professional, in which case, great. But um, most students don't, which is why we're talking about this today. Exactly. Okay, we have time for one more question, uh, and that is, what about if, uh, what happens to my aid or my child's aid if, um, if the student drops a class or maybe takes more than a full-time course load? So again, this is something that you want before you make this decision. You want your child and or you want to call the financial aid office to have a discussion with a financial aid counselor. Um, most of the time, the scholarships and the grant funds that are offered to your children are often based upon full-time enrollment. So if they drop a class or drop two classes, they completely lose um, that scholarship and are going to eight. Some schools might reduce it based on the percentage. So students now considered three-quarter time. Maybe they'll get three-quarters of their grants or scholarships. So they're going to lose a quarter of it. But you... This is something that isn't necessarily going to come up all of a sudden. So before this happens, I always recommend you know, having that conversation with um, you know, the financial aid office, the financial aid counselor, to see how that's going to impact um, you know, the, the aid that's been offered to your child or to the, to the student. And then same thing, if the student's going to be taking more of you know, an, an overload of classes that they're going to have, you know, maybe an extra class, an extra two classes, again, maybe the schools will be able to increase um, their aid to offset those additional costs. Um, maybe they might be able to offset them slightly, but it might not be dollar for dollar or percentage-wise, and so it could be more out-of-pocket in the long run, so you might want to see if there's a less expensive way that the student can take this extra class and maybe not have to pay for it at the college they're going to be attending. Gotcha. Okay. 
Beth, thank you so much. This was all really helpful information. And hopefully people who are getting ready to, well, you've already signed on the dotted line. But for those of you who have not yet signed on the dotted line, you want to make sure and pay attention to these ideas, especially if paying for college is going to be something of a financial commitment for you as a family. And you're going to be making a lot of sacrifices for that. We're going to take a short break. But when we get back, we'll be talking all about disciplinary issues and the college process. So... The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. As I mentioned before the break... Our next segment is all about disciplinary issues and applying to college. And my next guest, Kenan Dick, he's probably seen at least a few of these in his days. He's a former senior admissions officer at Swarthmore, at Drexel, at Johnson State, and he is my college coach, edu- uh, college coach educator. He's my colleague here at College Coach. Um, so I know he's seen a few of these at least. Hi, Kenan. How are you? Good. How are you doing today, Beth? Great. All right. So disciplinary infractions. I don't know why, but mm-hmm. when I was planning this segment, I immediately thought of you as the person I wanted to have on as my guest. Um, I suspect it's because you and I think about this very similarly, which is maybe a bad idea because we share the same ideas. But I also know that um, I think everybody that we work with is pretty much in agreement too. So at any rate, let's, let's start with the very basics. What is a disciplinary infraction as far as college admissions is concerned? 
Well, basically, I think they, they fall into two different categories. Um, and the, the first category is uh, an infraction that uh, takes place within the high school environment. So that can be anything from uh, behavioral issues to, um, you know, cheating on an, an exam, you know, all sorts of different things that are taken care of and managed through the high school administration. So I see that as category one. Category two are those that can take place outside, and that can be uh, misdemeanors, that can be disciplinary action that uh, takes place through the local police department and that the, the students have to deal with through the, the standard court system. So basically, in my experience, it's been both uh, those two categories have been the main two categories that we usually have come across our desks as admissions officers. So okay, that's, got- that's how I would kind of describe them. And I think that's a really good distinction because there is a difference between the two and how we find out about them actually um, can depend on what kind they are. Why do colleges ask about them? Why does it matter? Why is that even a question? Well, I think drawing upon my my experience at Swarthmore College, I think the the big reason for us um, at, at that institution was we're a small community. And so I think there was a real concern that if you have a a small group of of students on campus, you really want to make sure that you're not inviting um, elements to that campus that are going to be of concern or are going to create disruptions and problems while you're on campus. So the the current dean of students at the time really kind of uh, emphasized that fact that, you know, if there are problems that these students have that, um, that you're admitting, we want to know about that so we can either help them deal with it um, when they get here, A, or if they're significant enough, then they may be problematic for our community before um, they even get here to the, to the point where we probably should not be admitting these students. Right. And so I think it was a, a sense of protecting the, the college community as a whole um, as that first priority. And then the second priority was saying, okay, you know, if the student has already indicated that they need help and they need support when they get here for those issues, then we want to be able to, to know about that so we can provide that help right from the very beginning. Right. I think that's great. And, I, you know, I think that's probably very similar. I think another big fear these days becomes about lawsuits. And what if you admit a student who ends up being a problem and then, you know, that's a problem for that student's roommate, for example, and you turns out that there was something in the student's past that the college never asked about. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons, but I think yours is points to the big one, which is every school has a community and you are admitting a group of students into that community and you sort of need to know what they've been out there doing and how that mm-hmm. might in, uh, impact your community. So uh, um, I would, you know, yes, good points all. My biggest, when I talk to families about this, I think the biggest fear for all of them is what does this disciplinary infraction mean for my child's chances of getting into college? Often they phrase it as getting into a good college. But I, you know, I really would broaden that and say that at underlying it all is the fear that maybe they won't even get in. And right. from your perspective, do you think a disciplinary infraction means you're definitely not going to get to go to college? Absolutely not. Um, and I think that, you know, and these are always debates that we have in committee about um, the level of infraction or what that infraction means for, you know, for the, the college community. And so we, we definitely don't see all infractions as the same. So, you know, we're talking about 
teenagers here, right? I mean, they, they do stupid yep. things. They don't have a, a prefrontal cortex to make great decisions all the time. So they make dumb decisions from time to time. But I think it's the nature of those decisions that really um, what we're trying to kind of evaluate when we're looking at these disciplinary issues. So, you know, for a student who gets, you know, caught smoking, you know, uh, marijuana or, you know, gets drunk at the, at the prom or, you know, those kinds of infractions that don't really don't cause direct harm. Yes, they break the rules. They're, kind of, they're stupid behavior. But students can kind of take from that and learn from it and hopefully make those corrections so that the next time they're faced with those decisions, they make the right one. And so in, in that context, I think that a lot of the times when we're a committee, we would be more comfortable with those types of infractions. And especially if the dean of students knew, knows about it, then they can, you know, essentially address that from the very beginning and say, hey, look, you know, we don't want to see this type of behavior on campus and kind of read them the riot act from the, from the beginning um, of their freshman year there so that they know kind of what, what's going on. But then there's more serious infractions. And, you know, I remember distinctly um, we had a situation where there was a, a private school that had um, a sexual assault among one of its, um, one of its team members, and, um, and we were recruiting someone from that team. But the school wouldn't tell us which one of those team members were involved. And so, you know, we felt very um, cautious about, you know, being able to admit somebody if we weren't able to identify if this person was someone who is engaged in sexual assault or, or not. And so that was a student that we eventually just had to pass on. So, um, so the nature of the infraction really, I think, determines how we look at it. And also how the, if, if it is one of those teachable moments and something that a student can learn from and move forward from, then you know, those tend to be ones that we, we, we say, okay, you know, they've, they've looked at it, they really are contrite about the, you know, the situation that they're in, they've learned from their mistakes, and, and they're moving on and we're comfortable with admitting the student. So I don't think at all that, um, you know, that having those types of um, disciplinary actions or a disciplinary action on your application means that you're not going to get in. And I think you just led me right to, a, I think, a really important point, which, well, they're all sort of of a piece, right? Which is you knew about the infraction because the student answered the question honestly. And then mm-hmm. they had to write a piece, that's part of the Common App's requirements, to explain what happened. And in my opinion, a lot of times, not always, but often, how the student explains what they did and, you know, sort of how they reflect on it, I guess would be a better way to put it, is really where they make their case or just shoot themselves in the foot. Um, Because it's hard to go into committee and argue for a student who got caught drinking at the prom and whose explanation is, well, yeah, my friends and I like to party and, you know, we probably shouldn't have done it, but it was really fun Yay, senior prom mm-hmm. or yay, junior prom. Woohoo! You know, what am I going to say to my committee members there? Well, he's just exactly. a teenager. Tough to say right. when they had an opportunity to own up to it and at least admit, yeah, this probably was a poor choice on my part. And then they didn't, they didn't own up to it. So exactly. talk us through that piece of, of the importance of, of how you handle the infraction in your college application. Yeah, I think that it, it's not so much about the, the words that, that you 
that you use, but it's the tone, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, does the student have the maturity to understand what they did and and why it was wrong and, and learn from that mistake? And if, you know, if it's dismissive, if they feel like, yeah, I, you know, I screwed up, but, you know, it was the teacher's fault or, you know, or whatever it might be that they kind of just dismiss it. That kind of attitude really, in my experience, has rubbed admissions people the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and that kind of behavior is, we feel, is just going to translate right into their freshman year and they're going to do the same stuff and they're going to be that same kind of kid that you wish you didn't admit. Right. And so I think the tone of how you write that is so important that um, that you get that right and you and you walk that line so that, that we understand that you've learned from this behavior and this incident. Yeah, I, exactly. And, you know, I just always appreciated honesty. And um, mm-hmm. there were a few times actually where, to your point, the words were super contrite, but the tone was almost... And this is probably a bad example to give, but it was almost mocking. It was so, I should never have done. I mean, it was so over the top that to me it felt disingenuous. I I didn't really buy it. I thought the kid was like, well, this is what they want to hear, so that's what I'm going to write. And whereas maybe another student said something in a more straightforward way, but it felt genuine and honest and that resonated more with me and in turn I could make that case more effectively with the committee because of that. Agreed. I agreed. And I think that, you know, because you're not typically speaking you're not the only reader. Um and I don't I haven't worked for a school where you would be. So that, you know, there's other people that are going to be reading behind you and are going to read that same text and kind of get their feel for it. And so you really want to have kind of a broad spectrum um, appeal in that piece, because it's probably one of the most important pieces of writing in that application, right, under yep. those circumstances. Yep. So, um, so getting that tone right so that it appeals to and, and kind of strikes that correct tone um, across the board is, is not easy to do for, you know, for a 17 or 18-year-old, but it's really important when they're in that situation. Right. I agree. And, um, you know, have somebody else read it and maybe who doesn't know you as well as your parents do. And and just, you know, do I sound I'm genuinely contrite about what happened? Do I sound that way in the essay? Um, There's your Mm -hmm. first barometer of it. Um, Mm -hmm. What about I do think we we do also get questions. Well, do I really have to tell them about this? Technically, it didn't happen on school grounds. And, um, you know, I got in trouble, um, but, you know, and I did end up getting suspended, but the school said they're not going to tell the college. You know, what is your advice right. for in that situation? Right. Yeah. I've had that situation where, where kids were told, um, despite the suspension, it's not part of your, it, it's not going to be recorded on your transcript. So even though you spent the day at home. And my advice to those students is, it is disclose it anyway, yep. um, because typically if they're in that situation, it's it's a more of a minor offense. It's something that we're not going to be terribly concerned about, but the consequences of not disclosing it can be much more dire. Yep. And so, if we learn about that infraction through a whole other you know set of channels um, besides the application. Then, you know, when we look at that application and you say, I verify that everything that I've written here is true, you've blown it. Um, and so that, that application essentially becomes, in my mind, void. Yep. So, um, so even if it's, if it's a non-disclosed um, 
infraction, I still recommend students disclose it and, and write about it, and most likely it's going to be fine. The exception, of course, to that is, you know, if a student is arrested or something and has those court records expunged, then that is something that most, uh, all the applications that I know of will say you do not have to report that. Right, because so legally that, that's speaking. That's a big exception. Right. Correct. Legally speaking, that doesn't exist anymore because it's been expunged from your record and therefore, right, that is a big exception. But you're going to want to be sure that that's the case. And so you're going to want to look at that and you may want to consult with a lawyer if you have that um, just to make sure. Mm-hmm. Because I do think, how can you successfully argue, well, yes, I really learned from this experience. It was not ideal. Um, I made a big mistake, um, but I've learned and I moved on and I won't make that mistake again if you have you originally said nope didn't make any mistakes at all and 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 essentially kind of lie it's a sin of omission versus commission but you're still leaving something important out and you've shot your credibility all to hell or excuse me you shot it (laughs) at that point (laughs) if you've done that all right so um something else that i wanted to talk about um just maybe uh you mentioned that that example of sexual assault. That's obviously a really big deal. Another thing um, that I'm seeing that became less and less, ex- it was never acceptable, but because it's becoming actually a big issue on college campuses, the question of academic dishonesty is, mm-hmm. I think, becoming a little bit more difficult to um, to get over. And how you handle that type of a situation is can be really tricky, Um and very important to do that well. And I'm curious if you saw the same thing in your in the schools that you worked at where things like plagiarism, um, cheating on a test, if you saw that becoming a really big issue and tough to get past in committee. That's what I think one of the more difficult um, infractions to try to get past a committee. Um, and so there has to be some extenuating circumstances that um, that that really kind of come to the aid of the student in those situations. Um, now, I've had an example of a student who the school said, um, we kind of made an example out of this kid. We're not really sure if he did it or not, but mm-hmm. um, you know, we made an example of him. And so we took that into consideration. But most of the time, you know, for especially with schools that have an honor code, if you have um, a, an academic infraction, uh, a dishonesty charge, that usually can be really problematic to try to get through committee. Um, so I've, I think that's one of the ones that, um, at least when I was at, at Swarthmore, would just almost be an automatic deny. That unless yeah. you know, the, the school was coming to their defense and explained exactly what happened and why we should consider the student, then it, it was almost impossible to get that through committee. Yeah, I, so that's one I, that we took really, really seriously. Yeah, I think it sometimes surprises people that that's quite a big deal. Um, they think, you know, the drinking or things like that might be a bigger deal, but that just tends to be a little more teenage behavior. Uh, you know, exactly. one piece of advice I would have, and, you know, for those, good luck with that. With this, I realize, but if you're going to have your infraction, particularly if it's an academic one, have it early because 
it's a lot easier to show how you've recovered from what happened and explain your mindset, why it happened, the steps you've taken to make sure that it never happens again. And maybe also you might have an opportunity to show how you've regained the trust of your teachers and your school. Um, but mm-hmm. if you have that infraction in your senior year uh, and the schools find out about it, maybe even before you apply or it's happening as you're applying, that's, that is virtually impossible to get over. But, you know, I had a student uh, a couple of years ago who had an academic dishonesty issue in her freshman year. She was put on academic probation. And then um, really, she was able to explain what happened. It was something she kind of didn't understand. She was able to Mm -hmm. work through it. And actually, the school community really embraced her. And she was a... um, you know, she was a real senior leader within the school environment. She had a number of leadership uh, uh, roles and the the recommendation letters were very complimentary. And it was pretty clear that she'd managed to overcome it and the colleges saw it that way, saw it that way as well. So um, another probably not useful piece of advice is if you're going to screw up, do it early on because then you can have a little bit of recovery. Um Right. Can we have about yeah. one more minute? Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Anything I, I forgot to ask about or that we didn't talk about that you think is important for people to know? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, um, that's important is, you know, is what that risk is, right? And, and so we've had situations where you know, even uh, an essay that was written for the application, we found out in the spring of a person's senior year that she didn't write that essay. Mm. And so, you know, our only recourse really is to uh, to rescind the the um, admission to the school and and say, you know, sorry. But you know, this was one of those situations where you had a kid who was a great student, um, you know, real high achieving student, made a mistake in that pinch of you know of trying to get things done, and really cost a lot of her um, possibilities because of that error. Yep. So, um, so these, you know, these these types of infractions, or you know, the omission that you mentioned, or or um, just that academic dishonesty, whether it's in school or applications, can really have a a really negative effect on you know, the options that you're going to have going forward. Right. So, teenagers, please. Heed our warning. Don't do it. It is always better to get a zero on the quiz or turn in an essay that's maybe not quite as good as you want it to be than it is to do this and have the consequences be considerably worse. Kenan, thank you so much. Uh, It was great to have you on. When we get back, we're talking undergraduate business degrees, so don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Earlier in the show, I noted that business is becoming more and more popular with students and families, certainly the ones that I work with, but I'm seeing it uh, with a lot of the families that we work with at College Coach in general. Uh, and we thought our listeners would like to learn more about that because if it's if we're seeing that it's more popular, uh, I'm, I'm, I feel comfortable saying that it's more popular kind of everywhere. Um, and Christine Kenyon, who's a former senior admissions officer at Babson College, which is a school devoted to business, uh, is the perfect person to be our guest on this topic. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And I should probably add as well that when I was at Penn, I read applicants to Wharton's undergraduate business program as well from all the students from my region. So I know something about undergraduate business, but I think you probably know more because that is Babson's (laughs) focus completely. Um, So I guess, you know, just in general, what... um, what kinds of things are students studying in an undergraduate business program? Sure. Um, I think that most undergraduate business programs uh, today do a really nice job of allowing students to take a variety of different courses that fall under the greater umbrella of business administration or business management, because that's sort of a broad topic. Mm -hmm. So uh, depending on the program, students will have exposure to classes like marketing, finance, international business. Um, Some colleges offer programs in sports management. Um, They'll have exposure to topics like accounting and um, actuarial sciences. Um, But then many programs also offer uh, a combination of liberal arts uh, courses as well. So in conjunction with uh, some of these more quantitative courses, um, you know, statistics and calculus and um, a lot of the other ones I just mentioned, students will still be taking history and English um, so that if they want to go into marketing, they'll be able to, um, you know, be able to think creatively but also write creatively. If they want to go into PR, they'll be prepared to, you know, write up 
press brief or whatever uh, is necessary for them to, um, you know, catch the reader, the reader's attention. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one thing that I often think about when I think about undergraduate business programs are group projects. Is that something that you see a lot of in undergraduate business programs or that you had a lot of at Babson? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was sort of the name of the game. And I think um, in business in general, um, our goal at Babson was to graduate students who could work effectively in a team, um, who could react to setbacks, and who could think on their feet. And the best way to do that was in a group project because in the real world and uh, when you're out in uh, the working world, um, you work with your colleagues on a daily basis. It's it's rare for someone to work within the field of business and um, not consult uh, their colleagues for, for information. So mm-hmm. there were tons and tons of group projects at Babson right off the bat from the freshman year. Um, and, uh, you know, I think at times this was uh, a shift in experience for many students from, from high school uh, as they entered into college. Um, but what's nice about going into such a specific major like business is that within these group projects, you're going to be surrounded by peers who share the same passion as you do and who are just in that, as invested in this experience. Right. And so, however, word to the wise for that student who hates the group project because <laughs> they want to do it all themselves um, and they hate that slacker in the corner who is not going to do a thing and stamp their name on it at the end of the day, possibly not the best thing to go into, at least as an undergrad. Fair? Right. right. <laughs> Okay. Very fair. What kind of what kind of student do you think conversely would be uh, typically, or what kind of students did you see who were typically interested in the program? Not only interested, but also uh, you saw as good applicants. You know, the kind of student where you said, "Yes, this student makes sense for an undergraduate business program." Sure. Um, a lot of the students who were attracted to our program didn't necessarily have uh, prior experience in business, um, and a lot of students are surprised to hear that. So they may have had some exposure to the world of business, either from parents or friends. Um, perhaps they'd taken a business course as an elective in high school, but most of our applicants actually hadn't. And so the thing that drew them to, to Babson College was that they had um, perhaps an inclination towards uh, the more math-oriented or um, quantitative uh, style of learning, Um, but then they also just had an interest in the world of business. They wanted to work with people, they had an interest in dynamic learning, and uh, most importantly, they had an interest in hands-on learning and um, having the opportunity to uh, dive into the real world uh, while while in their college experience outside of just um, during their summer experience. Gotcha. So funny, as you're talking, I'm thinking, this sounds a lot like my son, who, by the way, is only 11, so it's not like... (laughs) I'm not. I'm not. I'm not setting his course or his path just yet. But that that does sound, you know, a lot like something he would enjoy. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about majoring as business in business as an undergrad. What what kinds of things are graduates doing with those degrees? Are you are they in your opinion? Do you feel like they're a little pigeonholed, or are, is there a wide variety of stuff that they can do when they get out? What what kinds of next steps did you see students taking at Babson? There are so many opportunities for students um, as business majors to enter into a variety of different fields, and I think that was one of the things that we loved to talk about the most at Babson was that you know just because you you major in business and you graduate from this institution, it doesn't mean that the only course that you have to take is something that's going down uh, the route of finance. So certainly we had students who went off to become um, accountants and CPAs, 
who became, you know, investment bankers, um, financial analysts, and consultants. Um, but the larger majority of our students went on to a variety of different areas, marketing. Um, a lot of students went into nonprofit work, so they have the business acumen to think on their feet, um, to understand how to sort of balance uh, payroll and think about a budget, um, but going into sort of that nonprofit sector Um, And then Babson, because they are well-known for their entrepreneurship program, we also had a handful of students every year who would kind of strike out on their own and start their own businesses or work for startups or or tech companies um, out on the West Coast. So um, there was always a lot of opportunity. And uh, I even know some students who uh, became teachers afterwards. So they went to the business college because they wanted to to learn a specific style. They enjoyed that group learning environment. They uh, enjoyed thinking on their feet and just having this base of knowledge. Um, But then they decided that they wanted to become teachers and, um, you know, pursued that afterwards. So it, it can open a lot of different doors and a lot of avenues, which I think is really exciting for many students today. It is very exciting. And as a little small side note for our listeners out there, the founders of College Coach, way back when, we've been around for about 15 years now, they met at Babson as undergrads and <laughs> they created College Coach. So there you go. There's there's something interesting. And now, story. exactly, a great success story. Certainly from my perspective, a great success, success story since I've worked here for, uh, for a while now and, and love this place. What about um, students studying business as undergrads? One question I get from parents and or assumption I hear from parents and students is this idea that if you study business as an undergrad, you don't then have to go back and get your MBA. And so they're looking to simply take care of it all as an undergrad, and then they don't have to worry about going on to graduate school. What's your experience with that? And and do you agree with that? Or would you say that that's not always the case? I think that uh, there is a lot of truth to that in that students who study business at the undergraduate level are sort of um, creating this baseline of information for the business world that a lot of students who perhaps were, um, you know, more liberal arts-based majors wouldn't have been exposed to throughout their four years. And so, you know, going to that MBA might be a little bit more important. But for every year, you know, there are students who go back and get an advanced degree, whether it is um, the MBA, um, sitting for their CFA, which is extremely comprehensive and a lot of work, um, or going on to get a a master's degree in something very specific within what they want to do. So um, I think that what it gives the students the leg up in is that first job after college because business students have no problem finding internships over the summer. And that's not to say that they won't have some difficulties finding it or that they um, will always get their first choice for an internship option. But in general, business students at the undergraduate level are in high demand for coming into those internships over the summer. And because of that, they're able to build a resume that becomes extremely attractive to employers after college uh, because they know that the students have a track record of a couple of years of experience both inside of the classroom and outside of the classroom that can be immediately used and kind of plugged into their company or organization. Right. And I think it's worth noting that there are some organizations, some major banking firms, places like that, where they may really expect you to ultimately get an MBA. If you're going to move up, you're going to have to have it. But mm-hmm. they have. there are other ways you may not have to do that in the traditional way. Maybe you could do an executive MBA program. If a company loves you, they might pay for you to do that. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I, I, I always hate to make blanket statements about anything. You know, if you do this, you don't sure. have to do that because who knows. But to your point, there is a, a strong possibility that you might not have to, which is great. We have um, literally about one minute. We already talked about the kinds of activities maybe that students would be involved in or that it would surprise people that that business-related activities were not something that you necessarily required for applicants. Any other quick things that you expected to see on an applicant's, a a strong applicant's application? Um, I definitely think, you know, a a bit of a focus towards um, the more quantitative aspects of their high school curriculum were important to us, Um, but also just how much research they had done on our institution, you know, how, how could they show us that Babson was the right place for them, that business was what they knew that they wanted to study, Um, and that's where those supplemental essays became very, very important to us because it really shows that even if the student has no experience in business, which most don't, they've done their research and they know a little bit about what makes the business uh, undergraduate experience unique. And, and they want to be a part of it. Right. And for those of you who are interested, we did a segment um, uh, recently, fairly recently, maybe a month or two ago, about the why this college essay and how to go about that. So if you're listening to what Christine is saying and thinking, whoa, I got to do a good job on that essay, you want to go back into our archives and find that segment and listen to it because there's some really great tips there. Uh, thank you so much to Christine and to all of my guests today. We have a great lineup for next week's show that I want to tell you guys about. Um, as many of you may be aware, there was a, actually an op-ed about this in the New York Times uh, earlier this week. There are some really great alternatives to the highly selective private schools that everybody talks about and that the brightest students tend to shoot for. And those are the honors programs and honors colleges at some of the public universities in this country. Uh, and we're going to be talking about those along with another type of offering that might appeal to some students, and that is same-sex colleges. And we want to talk a little bit more about what the benefits might be in attending an institution where it's either all male or all female. Um, And finally, we're going to cover how college students can best manage their summer earnings during the school year as well. Um, Just a reminder, as I just mentioned about the segment on the Why This College essay, you don't have to listen to our shows live. We like it when you do, but every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. Uh, You can download every show for free on iTunes. So you want to get in there. Uh, In fact, in the last two weeks, we did four amazing segments on the Common App. So if you're struggling with filling out the Common App or you haven't started yet, really good place to start or to turn to for some help. Uh, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.